Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to episode 15 of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode as well as one of five future episodes in the series from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. Dr. Beth Savin is a world-renowned leader in the practice of environmental sustainability. While the topic of the environment is much discussed by many, if not most Canadians, Beth has spent the last 25 years actually doing something about these issues. The examples she gives of projects from the University of Toronto are now having wider effects on other institutions and, more importantly, on the generation of students currently going through a transformative period in their lives. One lesson I pulled from our conversation is that knowledge exchange happens in many forms, most powerfully, however, in the face-to-face learning that is also supported by web-accessible information and institutional enablers. I was inspired and hopeful after this interview. I hope you are too. I'm in the Earth Sciences Building at the University of Toronto with Beth Seven. Beth, thanks for taking the time today, and can you just introduce yourself and tell uh, people a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, Peter. I'm the Sustainability Director at the University of Toronto, and I've been on the faculty at the Centre of Environment and previously at Innes College teaching environmental studies for 25 years now. During the course of that period, I've worked extensively with uh, environmental, non-governmental organizations off campus, both um, in terms of providing support for them and also of various kinds, and also in terms of providing venues for students to learn on the ground, off campus. So I've facilitated a kind of an exchange between those outside community groups and the university over many years, and I've now taken that experience and the knowledge of how to harness the resources both on campus and off campus to my current position, um, which is really an internal university position where I'm trying to marshal grassroots support and use grassroots energy to green the university as a whole. The environment is on everybody's agenda now, whether they're actually doing things or not. And one of the the definitions of knowledge exchange or knowledge mobilization is bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. What does this mean to you? If you were to think about that in the context of the environment, what is knowledge exchange for you? I think that there are many kinds of knowledge that need to be brought together with people and with their values in order to influence behavior. And we're involved in a very specific example of doing that with the goal of conserving energy and other resources on campus. So we have a program which we called Rewire. And it was initial impetus was provided by two second year undergraduate students who piloted it three years ago. It's now expanded and is in seven residences and several offices on campus. And we expect within the next few years to go campus wide. What we do is we bring information to people um, about practical methods that they can undertake to conserve energy and other resources, and we marry that to the information that they already have from the outside society in terms of impacts of climate change on their own personal environmental values, and we do so in a quite calculating way that brings together all of these motivators and results in concrete behavior change. And we've accomplished savings of 10% in terms of electricity use in residences and 6% in offices. So, you know, it's a very uh, carefully orchestrated campaign 
which builds on knowledge that we provide, but also knowledge which is outside in society and which people have access to through all the usual media. So how do you actually align those various forms of knowledge? Do they compete with one another? Can you get them to work together? I think that behavior change is likeliest to happen and may only happen when they're aligned. When you're competing and um, with other sources of information so that if, for example, the media were still saying climate change is a mirage and the evidence doesn't support it and the ice caps are getting bigger and polar ice is expanding and the summer ice is lasting longer and we were telling everybody, you know what, climate change is an imminent issue. You've got to cut down on your energy consumption in order to reduce emissions. I think we'd have much less success. What the psychological literature shows and what we also have found is that when people have an internal set of values which motivate them to act in a certain way, they find it very difficult to act otherwise. And so if they have failed to act consistently with their values, it's very often because they don't know how, perhaps because they feel that there is not peer support for acting in that way. But most importantly, they don't know how, or it could be inconvenient. Well, th that's an interesting piece because the, the not knowing how fits in with what the Canadian Council on Learning is doing on trying to create a culture and a context of supporting lifelong learning. So in the context of the environment and of changing behavior with regards to emissions, how does that process of knowledge exchange and lifelong learning fit together within the context of learning how to do something very practical like reduce your emissions? What we have found, and we've tried a variety of techniques over the three or four years that we've been doing this, is that um, a combination of techniques works best. So we tried to rely on the web um, and with some paper feedback to people about what their behavior change was resulting in, and that had limited success. It had some success, but it was limited. What has been the most successful is that when we have information available on the web that we make widely available to everyone, but the primary form of contact is face-to-face -face with somebody they know, ideally on their same residence floor, in their same suite of offices, someone they bump into every day, um, who is promoting the kinds of simple changes that we're advocating. And when they get that face-to-face -face information, when it's modeled for them, when they are shown how they can make very small, very easy steps that make a difference and then build on those smaller, easy steps to more difficult undertakings, we find it's been quite successful. So I think that relying exclusively on technology, relying exclusively on words on paper or images on paper is going to be much less successful than when you can harness people's relationships. And so I think it's those relationships that provide the avenue. And I think that's important in the environmental area, but it's important in all other areas as well. And when there are people that can model behaviors and model a role, that can be very powerful. So to give an example, I think that increasingly, people in the downtown area are using bicycles and walking to work. Okay. And there's been um, a whole change in the real estate market, at least in Toronto, where downtown condominiums have become extremely desirable. And there's been a dramatic increase in the population of the core area of downtown Toronto, which has exceeded the increase of population in the greater Toronto area. 
one of the things that's happening is that what was 10 or 15 years ago, a relatively small active transportation movement, has now become very mainstream. And so that the model developed by early, early cyclists and enthusiastic pedestrians has now morphed into something that is very much mainstream, that these downtown condo owners are recognizing and they're, they're actually purchasing homes that enable them to use those active transportation methods and it's one of the real draws for people to move downtown from outer areas. And so I think those models, those early models that can be provided can legitimize a new kind of behavior and it's through the face-to-face -face modeling of those new behaviors that people see that it's possible for them, especially when carried out by someone they admire or a peer who they feel has similar values. You're based at the University of Toronto, and it's a large institution. Um, how does the, the institution or the organization support those processes? Are there particular incentives put into place? Is there a particular infrastructure put into place that supports modeling, supports those relationships, supports the face-to-face? -face? There wasn't four years ago, but there is now. Okay, so how did that come about? What happened was the Toronto Atmospheric Fund uh, provided a, a significant grant to the university to set up a sustainability office and to look at uh, various techniques for reducing energy consumption, one of which was a major retrofit of some of our largest buildings, which was um, spearheaded by facilities and services. So over the last three years, the uh, sustainability office has uh, been developed, it's grown, I've, I've been installed as a director, and we uh, predicated our efforts on engagement of students. So the first things that we did were hire 35 work-study students. We engaged many coursework students in independent study courses and they did things like start this rewire re project, they started a paper conservation project called Resource, and they started a transportation project called the Bike Chain, and all of these have been student-initiated. So we engage about 100 students a year, and when the university saw what was going on, both in terms of enlivening the experience of our students and giving them an outlet beyond their normal coursework, and when facilities and services saw the kind of gains in terms of energy conservation that we were able to support, uh, a number of units at the university pitched in money both to support the student engagement and to support the energy savings. So we now have a base budget which allows us to continue. So it's a kind of a marrying of the engagement with the very focused uh, activities and the research that goes into monitoring those activities so that we can demonstrate what the concrete savings are and what the financial benefits are of those savings that has, I think, allowed us to become institutionalized. And one of the outcomes is that not only the students who are mostly green when they get here, at least in mind if not in action, but the staff have become extremely enthusiastic about these initiatives and are really gung-ho about doing things in the offices and in their buildings um, in a way that I never anticipated. So there's been really quite uh, a groundswell. So there's an interesting piece because people getting together to create actions and, and you know, create these initiatives have led to a series of other things being implemented. And one of the arguments I've heard from some places is that we actually ha need good evidence 
we need to have this all very well grounded before we actually move forward. So when you hear the word evidence, what does that mean? Do you actually act only when you have all the evidence, or is there a tipping point where you can put something into practice? Well, facilities likes to know for sure that they will save money when they invest in capital projects. And they have there's a history of green buildings being put forward, and they turn out to be less green than they were supposed to be, so that you end up with an increase in operating budget where it was expected that there would be a decrease in operating budget. For very good reason, facilities and services want to have clear, demonstrated savings before they'll put their money into something that costs more up front. So that's one kind of evidence. The kind of evidence that interests me is, I'm interested in pushing the envelope more than that, and I'm interested in looking at what can be done that might not have been done before. But I'm also interested in finding out whether it really can be done, and not just functioning on the basis of wishful thinking. All of our projects marry research and monitoring with experimentation. So, for example, with our rewire project, we aren't just going into it and relying on surveys that people say, oh yes, they're more environmentally friendly at the end of our project than they were at the beginning. We're actually carrying out detailed site-specific monitoring of electricity consumption to find out whether it has gone down on an annual basis pre and post um, our rewire intervention. So not just perceived, but that there's actually a measurable change. Yes. So, And I think we don't wait to see that measurable change before we intervene. We intervene and during the intervention we monitor to find out what the outcome of that intervention is. So I have a slightly different approach from facilities. They want to see those results before they'll invest. I won't do that. I get, I get funds from various sources, including research funds, to do those experiments, to find out what works, to tailor the approach to make sure we have the maximum beneficial outcome. And then we can say, okay, we've got the evidence. We've done the monitoring. This works. Let's spread it out and, and, um, and use these programs more broadly. 